0: Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature mind, body, and soil. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Cavanaugh, in case you're new here. Today, my guest is Katrina Amaral from Timber Doodle Farm in New Hampshire, and we explore the topic of timber. Over the years, as a butcher and as a nutrition therapist, I've really come to view our relationship with food to be one of our most intimate relationships. This is something that we put into our body every single day, and it is. It creates this elegant conversation that we're having between us and our environment and our cellular processes. And so there is just this deep intimacy to food. And when we expand out from there, we see the ways that that intimacy connects us back into how that food was grown and how that food was raised and all of the hands that touched that food as it was grown and raised in this part of our region or the country or even throughout the world. And then we think about how that food was then processed and whether processing is literally processed food, how food winds up from a field to a box, or whether that's the process of taking a whole animal and butchering it into cuts. There are the hands that are there in the processing. And then this unfolds to the drivers and the, the hands that drive our food, whether that's just from a farm to a local butcher shop, or if that's, all the way across the country, or maybe it's a ship that takes it back and forth between countries. And I think we're, we're somewhat familiar with this process of how food moves from farm to table and the many iterations that that can take within a conventional system and within a more grassroots and local system. I think that it takes an understanding of that to sort of get to our topic today. And I think that when we consider the intimacy of food in our lives, then we must also consider the true intimacy of timber in our lives. Here is something that often creates the structure of our house. It is the literal foundation and the skeleton of our living space. It often forms our floors, our doors, our baseboards, our furniture. And in all of this, we've invited this element of wood in to witness every intimate detail of our lives and we interact with it on a daily basis i'm standing on a wood floor right now and my feet feel that information we use this as a part of our children's toys and we know that when babies play with wood that they have a different response in their brains than when they play with plastic our relationship with timber is not just intimate it is ancient We have been a part, depending on where we were in the world throughout our evolutionary history, of the forests and spending time and using them as shelter. There is some evidence that humans have played a critical role in managing kindling or fuel that might spark wildfires in forests, that humans would actually be driven to move spaces when we were still in a nomadic space by exhausting the timber in that region for our shelters or as fuel for our fires. This is an incredibly intimate and ancient relationship that we have with wood. And I think that it's not something that we really consider My goal with this podcast is for us to just reconsider this relationship that we have with wood and two, in the same way that we think about where our food comes from and all of the hands that touch our food, to begin to consider where our timber comes from and all of the hands that touch our timber. And just like we are able to consider that the role that the food that we eat plays in a local ecosystem, so too can we consider the role that timber plays within our local ecosystem. Wherever you are right now, I want you to pause and consider, do I know the species of the trees that grow in my region? Could I tell the difference between a maple and an oak? Between a spruce and a pine? And it's okay if you haven't considered this at all. Part of this is exploring curiosity. And this is one of my deep curiosities is how can I better connect to my forest to literal table timber industry? I'm married to a woodworker and so this podcast actually is incredibly close to home. So my husband, Josh, is a master carpenter and you can hear more about how he curated that skill set in the podcast that we did together. And he is an incredible creator of furniture and through this, I've gotten to deepen my relationship with those pieces of furniture that are in my life and to get to experience them both from the vantage point of function and from the vantage point of beauty. And in my husband's case, he makes very curious and geometric pieces. And so to, to experience them just from a just from a level of interaction and of of fun, there are a lot of different lenses that I think this conversation takes on. You know, we're taking on the lens of looking at a regional ecosystem, looking at building materials, looking at the cost of an industry and what it might mean to shop it more globally or more locally. We're looking at What is the fast furniture equivalent, sort of like fast fashion or processed food, and what the alternative might mean. If anybody has tried to do a building project in the last little bit of time, I guarantee you that you've thought about a little bit about where your wood comes from and how that is impacting your life. And one of the things that really began getting me curious about this topic was that Josh and I had had a really big project that we wanted to do and honestly couldn't afford to do it with the cost of of timber. And we sought out our local sawmill where we put together a bunch of offcuts for our project to make it a little bit more accessible. And this really set off my curiosity of connecting with local sawmills and better understanding where my own wood comes from. And so I am just as new to this topic as, as you might be. And I think that Katrina and I have a really great introduction into this topic. And I think, again, this is a space that I really want to begin to explore more. And she has so many beautiful thoughts on how you can better connect with your wood, local sawmills, but also the forest. And so I just encourage everybody to really soak up this podcast and to enjoy it. As usual, at the beginning of every Groundwork podcast, I like to leave a review. And this has been such a fun exercise because when I read these reviews and when you leave them, my offer is that by leaving a written review on Apple Podcasts, I will then send you a written note via snail mail, and it gives us this really beautiful chance to connect. Reviews are also the currency of the podcast world, and so they mean a lot. I would also encourage you, if you enjoyed this podcast, to share it with your friends and family. Maybe post it to whatever social media you enjoy using. And if you'd like to leave a review and see receive a letter from me, just shoot me an Instagram message at Groundwork Collective or an email at Kate at groundworkcollective.com and I will send you a little bit of snail mail. And so this week's review is from Abigail Rain. Wonderful Conversations is the title. The Groundwork podcast has been a huge catalyst in my thought life, and I have thoroughly been enjoying each topic Kate covers. She holds space for each guest to really expound on their passions, which leaves me considering what my own are. I walk away from each listen like I've had a part in the conversation and just experienced the wisdom of a sister, the patience of a friend, or dare I say the zest and inspirational spirit of a fun aunt. Her curiosity always sparks my curiosity and invites me to mull over new ideas or even revisit old ones. I usually find myself pondering more questions rather than defending stagnant answers. Whether you've been a part of the agricultural world your whole life or are just beginning to dip your toes in, please come share in a few revelatory moments by listening to this podcast. All I can say, Kate, is thank you for putting this out into the world. Oh my goodness, Abigail. I, what an honor it is to be to be a part of this review that you have left. I love so much that you feel a part of this conversation, that it is igniting your curiosity. And I am especially moved that this allows you to, I love this part, ponder more questions rather than defending stagnant answers. If I were to hold a value system, that would be at the center of it. Thank you for this beautiful and incredibly well-written review. My gosh. Please shoot me a message with your address so that I can send you a little handwritten note. Thank you so much for listening to the Groundwork podcast. And without further ado, Katrina Amaral of Timberdoodle Farm. You were talking about the sparrows and the salt marshes and how they have to, that their biology
1: depends on these tidal cycles. It's adapted to, but also, you know, that with higher tides causing a lot of problems. Sure,
0: sure. I'm sure that's moving, that's probably moving their whole nesting grounds and their, I mean, the entire ecology of that
1: area. Yes, it was. Working with beaches and salt marshes is very different than working with forests on so many levels.
0: That was going to be one of my questions. How do you get from ground nesting birds and salt marshes into forestry and ownership of a sawmill? What does that journey look like?
1: Yeah, they somewhat concurrently. Miles built a sawmill while I was still doing bird research, so milling, you know, I would go out at sunrise and do my field day with finding nests and catching sparrows, and then come home and usually collapse for a bit and then we'd sawmill because we were building a chicken coop for our first set of chickens out of lumber from the backyard of the apartment we lived in
0: what precipitated the purchase of the sawmill in the first place. I'm just so curious what conversation
1: happened preceding that. So the first sawmill was a build. Miles is a mechanical engineer, so he built a chainsaw mill and he'd done firewood in high school. He's one of the few people I know whose first vehicle was a dump truck. (laughs) So... That's amazing. (laughs) There's that. Yeah, that's Um, incredible. Yeah. So he was doing firewood and kind of really random tree cutting, like hazard tree cutting for people before I'd even met him. So he'd already had that, like, I don't know, he'd caught the, the wood bug and built a sawmill because... And there's no better, there's actual reason.
0: (laughs) No, sometimes I think that's the best reason though. And I know in my relationship, a lot of our interests have evolved together. Somebody started off with this interest and we sort of grew into it together in both directions. But also I think a lot of things that we've sought out and sort of ended up doing is just, it happened in this, what precipitated it was because it was just an itch that we wanted to scratch all of a sudden.
1: Yeah. Um and so we built this chicken coop and we kept milling random things and we liked it and I l- I liked building things and I liked being outside and it's satisfying to create piles of stuff. It's very tangible. So yeah, just kind of it it snowballed. And then we actually we bought our first sawmill after we had missed out on buying a house. Actually, so retail therapy, I suppose, is how we justify. I don't know. It's Not a good reason for a business. I had orders and upgraded. So and just kept going. I want to
0: lay some foundation here for our conversation around timber and around the ownership of being a sawmill and being a Sawyer. One thing that I kept coming back to as I was doing my due diligence for this podcast was the similarities between, in many ways, this sort of regional lumber system and a regional food system. And one of the things I've noticed as a butcher over the years that's worked in regenerative ag and talks a lot about local food systems is that it's really hard to describe to people the value in a regional food system without first describing how the industrial system works. That you almost need to to understand this sort of greater idea to understand this alternative to that idea. And so I was wondering if you might sort of guide us, from, guide us through the process of bringing a log from forest to, to lumber yard uh, in both an industrial setting and then
1: what you do? Sure. That can be a complicated question. I'm sure it um, is. I'll do this by saying that the best analogy might be that logging is very, it can be very similar to growing crops. And then sawmilling is more like post-processing. So butchering or like grains or something. And so it's kind of this dual layer that we interact with. So I'm, I'm trying to think of like a good example. And I know your podcast listeners are probably from all over the country. So forestry is very regional it's very regional because the ecosystem is different and the forest is different and the species are different absolutely but probably the like the best examples for this kind of like commercial scale forestry is in softwood so those are like by fours. It's what the media is referring to when they say, oh my God, lumber prices, they're skyrocketing. They don't actually mean all lumber. They mean like dimensional softwood lumber. So the internet connection is unstable. Thank you, computer. So think about the number of two by fours that goes into like the frame of a house. Sure. I, and it's a lot. Yeah, I was about to say, gosh, I don't even, I have no idea. It's a lot. But you can use that kind of vision of, like, you know, a house going up with all of those two by fours in the walls to think about how much tree, how many trees you need to create that building. Yeah. You need a very high yield. Yes. Kind of the commercial scale is to, Grow trees and harvest trees and mill trees on that production level, like just output two by fours or whatever. But, you know, the two by four is a good people understand what they are
0: yeah this was actually as I was kind of picking my husband's brain about some questions here that was that was our initial starting point for looking at an industrial system was two by fours. and I'll add here that he told me and I didn't know this, that two by fours used to actually be two inches by four inches, but they are now one and a half by three and a half inches, which I think speaks to this idea of growing something for yields and for volume. Rather than quality.
1: Yes. And it's so interesting as a small mill to be like, well, do you want like the standard two by four or do you, are you actually asking us for two by fours? Because (laughs) we can make either, Um, but yeah. And so, you know, the big production mills are buying logs down to, I think a four inch top. Which is basically saying that the small end of a log is four inches in diameter. And like, think about that from a tree perspective. It's pretty tiny. Yeah. And I'm
0: sure that the turnaround time on it, that they're trying to get that turnaround time as quick as
1: possible. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, that has implications for soil health and. Carbon and softwood systems tend to rely on much more herbicide use, which you don't really think of for forests. But, you know, in that system, the broadleaf maples or aspens or whatever, those are weeds.
0: Mm -hmm. And so they use herbicides to tamp down those those forest, you know, quote unquote weeds, which is going to affect the forest and that ecosystem as a whole in the same way that glyphosate is going to have an effect in a monocrop situation.
1: Yes. Big production softwood forests are very much like a monocrop. They are a monocrop. The species is very dependent on the region in most cases, but You just plant eucalyptus everywhere and you get your paper products.
0: Okay. So paper products predominantly or exclusively maybe come from eucalyptus? Oh,
1: no, sorry. That was, but eucalyptus gets a pretty bad reputation. It's very water hungry and it's, I think Australia is now the seventh largest producer and it's only native to Australia. So you can kind of see how much it's taken over in other systems.
0: Yeah. And so what's I guess I'm curious when you're looking at this system, this monocrop of of lumber, and you're mostly growing two by fours, predominantly you're growing and stuff for I assume wood pulp to make things like plywood. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, all the like um, you know. MDF or yeah. yeah, Sorry. I'm trying to like explain this without getting way too in the weeds. You can get in the
0: weeds too. I mean, if you're comfortable getting in the weeds, I think I'm comfortable being in the weeds. Okay.
1: Well, okay. So there's like kind of different scales of timber products, right? There's your pulpwood, which is almost like if you're thinning carrots which is super healthy for a forest, or it can be depending on how you're doing it, you know, like you're thinning your trees, those might not be saw logs. You might not be able to make lumber out of them. And so sometimes that becomes pulp wood or firewood or something that is not like a solid wood lumber product.
0: Okay. So there's sort of several different categories of products that are coming out of a forest. There's pulp, Saw logs, firewood. I'm sure there are some some other things as well.
1: Biomass is the big one, like wood chips, which I'll go on the record as saying I don't love. Like There needs to be markets for low-grade wood, like pulpwood, in order to make sustainable forestry economically viable. But if you're taking too much out of the forest, like the tops of trees, you start to impact nutrient cycling.
0: So tell me a little bit maybe maybe let's dive into how you think about removing wood from a forest and let's start there is that a good place
1: to start maybe we don't have as many opportunities as we would like to really do timber harvests in like forests for the long term so i talk a good game But in practice, it's not always what we're doing. Sure. And I'm
0: sure that a lot of that has to do with creating some financial sustainability within your model, that there is a certain market that you are growing into with hopes of getting into a more holistic and 360 degree space.
1: Yes. Mostly Miles refers to it as the pine tree hit squad. We take out big pines for people who are putting in solar panels.
0: Sure. Because that's, that's a big market for what it means to clear an area at this particular time. Yep. And
1: the pines get really big. Yeah, sure. (laughs) And they shade out a lot.
0: So we have an industry that's producing everything from pulp trees, saw logs, firewood, biomass, and all of these different things. And they're producing them at an industrial or a commodity scale to just go into the lumber that we find at, I would presume, Home Depot and Lowe's to go into furniture that's made at Ikea, to go into these mass-produced, low-quality, high-yield industries. Is that a good summary? That's a pretty darn good summary. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And it is, it's so much like a monocropped field of corn or soy that's then just going into all of these other processed foods. And maybe we could draw the conclusion that some of this is like processed furniture or processed housing materials. I love
1: that analogy. Great.
0: And So in my in my world, and I think that there is there there are some similarities between being a butcher and being a sawyer, what do you do in an ideal like what is the ideal situation of operating a sawmill? And I know that there's where you are, but I want you to kind of speak to how you see the what the industry could be.
1: Well, start with one example from where we are, because I like it and then Kind of move on to to dreams and hopes, so we have been doing a lot of work with new homeowners, basically, or new landowners. They're building a house. You need to remove trees to build the house, and so we get to work with the builder, the architect, and the homeowner to take down the trees, very like custom, harvest them custom mill them and then they go back into that home on the site where they were harvested. So it's it's like a I don't know, boutique logging, I guess, boutique sawmilling. So we're very specifically harvesting trees, what's on the site and the logs and the lumber for the product that we're producing.
0: It's sort of if we're talking about farm to table, this is forest to home.
1: Yes. And like yes there are you know fragmentation development habitat loss that's all you know kind of part of the landscape but it is really lovely to be able to bring those trees back to the site they were harvested.
0: Absolutely. And in this, are you milling everything from the two by fours that in in an ideal situation, right? The two by fours that comprise the framing of the house, as well as any aesthetic pieces or exposed beams, cabinetry, things like that.
1: Honestly, we we're not at a production level to be able to do the framing lumber for a home.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine that that is. I mean, just what it takes to frame a home is astronomical.
1: It's a lot, it's a lot of wood and we're slow, right? So, we can't saw and dry, and that's the key part of it. Is the drying. Like we wouldn't be able to do all of that in the time it takes for a new landowner to like close out a home construction loan or literally <laughs> anything, um, yeah. so we do the this and and realistically, not to be an absolute lumber snob about this, but do it. Two by fours are pretty easy to process at a large, like they're easy to process at a large scale. You're not necessarily losing quality by mass producing them. I mean, like sure, maybe a little bit, but the flooring and the trim and the beams and all of that furniture lumber, like that's the stuff we really love to work with because we know we can give a better product than a mass produced.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sure it wouldn't feel economically viable to compete with the two by four industry at that level. Whereas this, this provides you with a unique opportunity I wonder if you might take us because I think so many of us are completely unfamiliar with the process of what it means to bring a tree from the forest to would I call it a saw log? I'm sorry, if a saw log that would be ready for trim or furniture. Can you kind of walk us through from forest to something that can be utilized in a building setting?
1: Absolutely. So, and I'll I'll give you you know what how we do it, which is usually. That we are cutting down the trees. Miles is currently hand felling. So he's, you know, at the base of the tree with a chainsaw. And we love that side because it really, you're interacting with this tree you're cutting down. We're also trying to find solutions where he would be in a cab because with invasive pests and climate changing and everything, like it's getting more dangerous to fell trees by hand. So, you know, I I say that we do love the hand felling, but at the same time, we're looking for safety solutions. And so once the tree is on the ground, you have to limit, you have to like, it's called bucking. So you you cut that whole long tree trunk to a saw log and that length varies based on kind of like standard log dimensions. You know, in hardwood, it's like, eight foot six, 10 foot six, 12 foot six. Those are your like standard logs, but there's an art to looking at a tree trunk and knowing where to buck the log so that you have the highest grade of lumber output from that tree. Because where branches split or, you know, like knot holes or if the tree trunk splits like or crooks or there's there is an art form to bucking a tree to log length. And I'll be perfectly honest that the great physics brain in the house is not me. So Miles is usually the one grating and bucking. So, but we use... So, okay, great. You've got logs on the ground, right? Like, that's lovely. But in order to get to, to the sawmill, which is... We're almost always working on a property that's not ours you need stuff. And for us, that stuff looks like either a tractor with a a log winch on the back of it, which is in the industry that's cable skidding, right? So we're, we're running a cable, we're, we're wrapping it around the tree and we're winching it to the tractor and then driving out. So I'm the skidder operator in all cases. We also have an excavator with a log grapple. And for anyone on the West Coast, it's like shovel logging. So you're kind of like taking the log and swinging it. And you can kind of shuffle them along like that. Or we use the forwarder, which is like an off-road log truck. And that gets the logs off the ground and it you're not dragging them through the soil you know it's it's different ground pressure dynamics and you kind of have to you've got to set out your logging job for the equipment you're using so that you're not impacting the trees you want to leave and so that i say that because we're still learning it a little bit with a forwarder it's a different mind game than with the tractor just on how they they interact. But so you get your logs to a place where the log truck can grab them. And our log trucker is amazing and he lives in our town and he trash talks us all the time but like it's a great relationship. <laughs> Sometimes he brings us really ugly logs cuz he's like no no you've got the customers for it. We're like mm, I don't know about that. But yeah, so so then the the logs come to us and we Mill them based on what the end product is going to be. So it's a different sawing pattern if the customer is looking for, like, you know, a quarter sawn oak product, which is like a, I love it. No one else seems to do, actually. Personally, I love it versus, you know, barn lumber or interior trim or flooring grade or whatever. And then you put it on sticks you know it comes off the sawmill it goes into a lovely pack full of sticks so that each layer basically is on sticks so that air can move through it otherwise it it can grow really extraordinarily fun mold colors and if it's warm and wet as summers tend to be in new england like pine will just go purple in days not what you might want for your interior trim so it it goes on stacks And this is kind of like where the slow part of the process comes in, which is that wood has to dry. And your husband is probably like, yep, because it's, wood moves, it has moisture in it, and it moves as it's losing moisture. And so if you put up a, if you make a nice table out of wet lumber, it will move and crack and split and warp and like bad things happen. So in order to use it, you need to dry it. And drying is not necessarily a fast process.
0: And this is drying, just losing that moisture content to evaporation over time as it sits with this good airflow?
1: So it depends on the species, basically. Wood in New England loses moisture. You'd get dry lumber at the rate of an inch a year. So, for like a one inch pine board, after a year, it would be dry enough to use. But most of the time, we need to push that timeline. And so, we have two kilns, which you put lumber in and it sucks moisture out of them using, you know, heat and air and vacuum actually inputs for ours. It's a company in Vermont called iDry. They're lovely. And so you take it to a kiln and it is kiln dried and then you pick it back up. We used to. Now we have two kilns. Okay.
0: And are they similar to a pottery kiln? Maybe this is a dumb question or is it a completely different dimension machine?
1: They're similar. They, they are similar. It might be easiest to think of them like pottery kilns you know they're obviously designed to work with how wood likes to use moist, lose moisture but the point is to suck the water out and so
0: then after the kiln is it ready is it ready for purchase is it ready to be
1: turned into its its next life yeah it depends what the customer is looking for right so it comes out of the kiln and it's dry but if you want flooring it needs to be kind of like post process Right. Because it moves as it dries. And so you've got to get it back straight. You got to do some sorting of the grade in case anything split during the process and you have to surface it so that it's not just like rough.
0: Sure. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And so there, there can be further post-processing after kiln drying and it's very dependent on project. Yes, exactly. I want to... There's so much I want to tease out. But one of the things I want to tease out is that you mentioned slow. And I... I couldn't help, but again, and I I think I'm just going to be want to do this to compare it to our food system, right? And our expectations at an industrial level that a chicken is going to reach weight in six to eight weeks versus a pasture raised chicken that is going to take anywhere from 12 to 18 weeks, or the expectation that a beef steer is going to be ready in 16 months versus, you know, I mean, here on our farm, we keep them until they are four years old. And so this idea of slow. And I think that something that I have some curiosity about in this is trees are slow, right? Like when we plant a little bare root sapling, that's just barely a branch. You don't really expect that to be a tree as we conceive of trees for decades. Right.
1: Yeah. Trees are slow. I mean, sugar maples are 400, 500 years. So it's pretty wild i think sometimes our expectation of of the lumber process cuz on a tree lifespan it's seconds really
0: yeah yeah and then it's it's slow to bring them into the quality that i think that you no, know, when you consider the magnitude of that life, there's a certainly a desire to honor that in a different way than just these processed furniture or the fast fashion of the wood industry.
1: Yes, and I love that we. Yeah, I guess sometimes it's a pain because we're we're moving a lot of lumber, a lot of different times, but at the same time, we're we're really really interacting with the trees as we're converting them to kind of a final form and we see some really cool stuff.
0: Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny in butchery. I always say that I get this really unique opportunity to see an animal's life from the outside back, you know, sort of inside out and to see all of the things that shaped that carcass composition. And I'm sure that that is infinitely more true when you're talking about a tree that you really begin to see, it's life in that wood
1: grain and in all these different things absolutely yeah no that's a perfect analogy and it also it gives you some idea of kind of the forest setting it was in we milled a bunch of logs from i think it was epping new hampshire and every single log had this like almost like a loose ring at the exact same place and we you know counted back and as far as we can tell it looks like those trees were young and growing during the 1938 hurricane sure and how did it impact their growth it just seemed to be present in that like loose ring which actually made the lumber somewhat terrible cuz that ring was that you know this is a terrible thing to visualize and you can't see my video but like think about the tree rings and you've got like a loose core in the middle of the tree. And so you're trying to get these flat boards out of it. But that loose core keeps trying to fall off of them. Yeah. Wherever you hit it. So that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. You get to I, not only an individual tree's life, but the life of, of a forest as a whole.
1: Yeah. And I, I certainly won't pretend to be an expert on reading the forest through lumber because there's just so much that I could learn that I don't know, just all of it. But it does, you know, I, I get this question, like, how can you work in conservation and cut down trees? And I just think that being able to interact with trees on this level makes me appreciate forests even more.
0: Absolutely. I mean, gosh, I get that question. How can you care for animals and the environment and participate in regenerative ag? And I think I just there are a lot of analogies and similarities here for me. And I think that Oftentimes, the closer we get to work with a a medium, the more we get to know it. And with Timber, we've lost that knowing. And as I prepared for this podcast, I really considered our relationship to Timber throughout the history of, of Homo sapiens has been rather intimate. I mean, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom of that pyramid is going to be the need for shelter and the need for for heat and that oftentimes equates back to timber and we would have had this intimate relationship with our regional timber system and would have been dependent on that for building shelter
1: and for creating fuel for heat absolutely i mean we evolved out of trees so it's it's pretty wild that we're so disconnected from what they produce sometimes Even up until probably 10 or 20 years ago in our region, at least, there were a lot more small mills, at least three just within like the couple neighboring towns that were doing like productions. Sure. Yeah. The timber industry, much like the agricultural industry and a lot of other places has very much consolidated. And so do you think that there is
0: a way that we can begin both at the level of the local sawmill, but also just anybody who's listening to this podcast, how can we begin to reconnect with the idea of forest and the idea of of being close to our timber and just how into, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you, I have a wood floor. There's wood trim on the walls. I have a wood desk and, you know, I, I have a metal chair, but I could have a wood chair. I mean, this is literally something that we are completely surrounded by at most times. And it seems, it seems, seems important to begin to refoster, reconnect that relationship. Yes.
1: I mean, obviously I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah I usually like to tell people that they're probably sitting within like five feet of a wood product, and like can you tell where it came from, or even in some cases like what species and the fact that the answer to that is almost impossible is very wild to me, and so I think the first step in many cases is just recognizing that like we're very disconnected from our lumber products our wood products and starting to think about like how did this get to me how did this get here because i think the statistic is something like a top grade hardwood travels around the world three times between tree and final product
0: wow And so is that just the division of all of those steps that you talked about being outsourced to different parts of the world?
1: Yeah. So we're, we're very vertically integrated. Um, Yeah. And to be fair, we do outsource things. We outsource. There's an amazing sawmill in Western Mass that does our, our actual like flooring if we need to, because... Their equipment is so much better. But yeah, a really high grade hardwood log can go around the world three times. And because the steps are disconnected. And so even if you're, I mean, I think, yeah, I still flows to Canada and back all the time, just even on a local level. So just having people start to think about, like, where was this tree growing and how did it get to me? And it's a super complicated question but there's i don't know i think about it like you know there are so many more farmers markets now than there were and like the the local agricultural system is so much more healthy and resilient and populated and i would love to see lumber start to be like that it's so different you know you don't have to buy wood products on a weekly basis in order to survive so food does have an an advantage in being like at the forefront, but just being able to have a local production stream. My dream is to be able to work with like architects and designers to connect them to timber harvests that are happening and then connect them to the sawmills that could mill the product they're looking for.
0: I think that I love that approach because I think that what we see, we become more curious about. And so, when you're really incorporating wood as an aesthetic centerpiece within an architectural or design sense, then you're really connecting people to that wood. And when that's then something that's been harvested locally of a species that's part of that regional ecosystem, then you start to begin to bridge some of those connections. Is that Tell me more about that process between connecting designers and architects to local wood species.
1: Quite frankly, I don't know. It's a dream at the moment, but it's just, you know, there's so much stuff out there and there's research about how, you know, like having nature in your home is so important and your connection to the outside world. And, but it lumber from somewhere else, it connects you. It's homey and it's warm and aesthetically it's lovely, but it doesn't actually take that step to connect you to what's outside your door.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that again, from that sort of evolutionary standpoint, we would have been. We are at home in nature, right? And I, I think about this a lot. This sort of myth of separation between us and nature, where we have this idea that we're not a part of nature, but we we indeed are. And I actually think that part of that it has been the way that we build homes, the way that we build four walls and a roof between us and nature. And so, to really, I love what you just said—to bring nature into the home and to create some of that warmth and some of that grounding that that has to. Offer and timber being, I think, a primary source of that.
1: Yeah. And obviously, there's some like really cool regional differences in buildings. And I follow these awesome folks in California who do like natural earth shelters, and that makes sense for that region. Absolutely. But in New England, it is actually quite nice sometimes to have those. <laughs> Four walls separating us from the weather. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I mean, I think in a lot of places, and there are different ways to build four walls, obviously, right? Like there's adobe builds and those, those earth builds, but timber is certainly a big piece of that. And I think that what we see now, and I know that you've talked a lot about this, right, is the trendiness of certain types of wood that really have no bearing on their relationship to that region. They're just part of an ongoing trend.
1: Yes. It's probably extra noticeable to us because we're in New Hampshire. And right now, white oak is very trendy. And I white oak's beautiful and I love it. And it's lovely to work with. Red oak is not trendy, not even a little bit. But the Monadnock region of New Hampshire grows the best red oak in the world. We don't grow great white oak. <laughs> We've got some of it, but like the quality... And it's so interesting because I talked to Sawyers down south and they're like, oh, red oak is so lousy, but like it's the southern end of its range and it's not growing quite as well. And we're at the northern edge of the white oak range and it's not growing as well. And so we're each super judgy of like the quality of the various timbers. But nationally, white oak is in and no one wants red oak. So, so there's, and
0: I wonder if that conversation that could happen between sawmill and designer or architect could better inform what might be not just trendy, but have longevity and have maybe even a positive or neutral ecological impact of having this red oak, for example, in New Hampshire.
1: Yeah. I would love, I guess to have knowing where the lumber comes from to be the trendy factor rather than the specific aesthetic because you first off, if you really need to. Yeah. And I think that also speaks...
0: I'm curious about quality because obviously whatever grows well in that region is going to have a lot more to offer in terms of quality, which I assume would look like longevity, would look like hardness, would look like resistance to warping or to shifting over time. And so not only are you getting a product that fits within your system, you're also getting something that is of better quality. I mean, it's like like looking at nutrient density in food,
1: I would love to say that's the case actually, but in oh, it might not be. general, it's it's not necessarily. I think the quality tends to come from where and how it was milled if it was on a production scale versus, you know, more hands on. Unfortunately, I would love to trash talk non local. <laughs> <laughs> no, I quite work like
0: that. <laughs> yeah. I, I and I have I had no idea. And I think especially just I think that a lot of us have a lot of naivete where it comes to this. And you know, my big grasp is for these food analogies just because I don't understand it. And I think that's what's so interesting about having this conversation is this attempt to understand how we even got away from using regional temper.
1: Yeah, some of it was, I think, resource depletion in certain cases. Some of it was probably, I mean, if you think like a couple hundred years ago and you start to have Europeans moving into like West Coast old growth timber, like... That stuff is phenomenal from a lumber standpoint. Yeah. I wouldn't cut it down because I don't think we can afford to anymore ecologically or culturally, but just like, oh my goodness, that stuff, that stuff is incredible from like a rot resistance and a like 300 feet of clear trunk. It's just, look at all that lumber. But yeah. And then, and then it trends and, and technology, I, I'm going to get the date wrong, but it's like yellow birch wasn't in use until either World War One or World War II when they started making airplane frames out of it. And so on a commercial level, they'd cut out the spruce, which had a ton of uses, and leave like the yellow birch. And so if you... We found this cool pocket of like kind of old growthy ecosystem type up north in Maine. And it was clearly logged. The spruce was basically gone, but it had been logged prior to whenever yellow birch was in demand. And they were all like four feet or five feet wide. Oh, wow. And so changing technologies can change the demand for various species.
0: Different species that have different qualities that make them more suited to that use, I presume. Yep. And so... It's not just aesthetic trendiness, it's it's functional trendiness.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the reasons people like white oak actually is it's much more rot resistant than red oak. I will grant it that. <laughs> but that's not necessarily why people want it. Are they
0: looking from an aesthetic standpoint right now? Yep.
1: It's got the red oak has the pink tones to it. It's not like the Scandinavian style white. My kitchen's cherry, so I can trash talk anything that's like whitewashed and whatever. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so no, there's, there's definitely like structural reasons for changing forestry dynamics.
0: Why don't we talk a little bit about qualities that different lumber species might have? I think that even this is a little foreign to me outside of just the sort of binary of hardwoods and softwoods. Sure, uh,
1: you might want to ask questions because all other like i don 't even quite know where to start unless you maybe, like list a species and talk about it you know you 're talking about
0: rot resistance, right, and wood has a lot of antibacterial and antimicrobial properties. I know we think about this a lot when we talk about using butcher blocks, but I assume that you know there 's hardness there 's softness there 's rot resistance with the yellow birch and creating airplanes. I assume it is lighter. In in very strong light, but strong. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's just almost wanting to find the, the sort of Venn diagram of adjectives that, that define wood and just, because again i think that this is so foreign to imagine all these industries that wood has touched and been used in it didn't even occur to me to think about airplanes which are now predominantly i assume different alloys
1: of metal yeah very much not not really wood anymore yeah there's also like how it was to add to your venn diagram how the tree was grown has an impact on its characteristics if that makes sense so like if you think about something that went grew really slowly it's got super tight growth rings because wood has that summer layer and it's winter layer okay and each of those you know depending on the tree species can be a little bit different i guess is the best word like one might be more porous than the other And so when you've got these like really dense, tight growth rings, your wood, even within the same species, can have slightly different properties.
0: Yeah. Properties in terms of hardness or, you know, again, you talked about porosity. What would be the benefit to something that is a little bit
1: more porous? It doesn't usually get more porous. I feel like I'm going to describe this really badly. This is where miles comes in usually because... His physics brain is, is
0: more articulate on this one. Uh, boy, do I understand that. Sometimes my my husband is just a translator for the the weird adjectives that I put onto things. Yeah. It's just it's sometimes
1: embarrassing when I'm like, ooh, I saw all the time, and do I actually know how to describe this? Let's go with something like, let's just go with an example. So, shingles on a house, right? Like most, most people can visualize this. The gold standard right now is like Western red cedar, right? We think of it as super rot resistant. It weathers really nicely, but honestly, the quality is declining because our standard is for essentially old growth. the really tight rings, the clear, no sapwood, no knots.
0: Okay. Actually, let's really quickly. Do you mind telling us the difference between old growth and new growth? Because I'm not sure I even actually understand that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I guess in like the tree forestry logging worlds, old growth is alternatively like a type of ecosystem or a descriptor of like a lumber or tree characteristic. Like you think about the really massive old trees out West, your big redwoods. And so when you're saying like an old growth forest is... I would define it as as a forest that the the ecosystem dynamics are still occurring, you know, pretty naturally. You've got trees that are allowed to just keep growing and decline or keep growing or, you know, just these really slow growing kind of, I don't want to say unmanaged because most indigenous communities were managing the forests in which they live and they still do. But just the biggest part of the forest like area is operating on, on the tree scale, not the human scale. And so when we talk about old growth, it's usually saying, you know, kind of like that type of tree versus something that has grown up since a timber harvest or that has been planted. If that helps clarify,
0: that does help clarify. And so that old growth cedar for those shingles is going to have very different properties than what I assume the new growth cedar that's being grown for quickness, for yields, is maybe shifting in terms of its properties.
1: Yes, that's a good way to describe it. And so we actually used pine for our house. White pine. Eastern white pine.
0: Which and, and you made the shingles. Did you mill the shingles yourself? Yes. <laughs> yes, we did unbelievable okay
1: but not not on like one of those like super cool like old-fashioned shingle makers yeah i don't even know that that's a thing they look far more terrifying we did it on our it's interesting you
0: know i live in slate country and so we actually have slate shingles on our roof that are from a quarry a slate quarry that is local that's so cool And so that there is that regional tie. And a lot of the parts of our old house are maple from the forest from 150, 60 years ago.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, slate roof would be very cool. It is. It's really cool. I actually think it's very effective and efficient
1: too. Nice. We have granite. So
0: (laughs) yeah, we're close to granite country. Like We're close to Dorset and there's a, a lot of marble and granite that are done in Vermont.
1: Yeah. I just love that Vermont has like options versus New Hampshire, which is just like granite. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: it's wild too. Like when you go into Dorset, Vermont, they have marble sidewalks, which is kind of just kind of boggles the mind coming from out West. But I mean, it's just an abundance
1: of a resource that is local. Yeah. That's very cool. I don't know where I was going with this.
0: We were talking about shingles and we were talking about the different qualities of wood and how maybe that has has changed based on our growing standards. And I think one of the things that you said that really struck me was you talked about tree scale versus human scale. And so when we're talking about, and I assume that when we're talking about an old growth forest, we're talking about a time scale that our little human existence can't really wrap our brains around versus now we're having to grow trees during that, that human time window.
1: Yeah. So it's it gets complicated really quickly. Oh, yeah. So our pine shingles. Pine, has a super terrible reputation for its absolute lack of rot resistance. And there was some sort of production thing, I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago, maybe where they were trying to use pine for exterior purposes, but the way they were milling it or manufacturing it, it was including the sapwood of the trees. And the sapwood is, you know, if you think of like the end of a log, it's it's where all the sap comes out, literally. It's kind of like the still living, growing, expanding. And on, on a white pine, the sapwood rots like as you look at it. It's so not rot resistant. But the heartwood... If you think about like pine snags standing in a forest, it takes them so long to rot away. And so the heartwood of pine is actually extremely rot resistant, especially if you find and have the time and patience to select and the sawmill resource to select like you know, tight growth ring, super pitchy. So it's, you know, got all those natural like stuff and mill that part of it into shingles and very carefully not include any sapwood.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And then you have something that's incredibly rot resistant because you were able to select for that product in the milling process.
1: Yeah. And there's, you know, building science stuff for making sure they have time to like space to dry out after rainstorms and everything. But with the actual like wood product, there's a reason that we used what we did.
0: Yeah. Maybe I've missed the boat here. Can you talk a little bit about the structure of a tree from that sort of outer uh, bark cuticle that we see into heartwood? Because I think that maybe there's misunderstanding at the very beginning of this.
1: Maybe. I'm going to embarrass everyone who's ever taught me biology and like my entire master's degree. But yeah, so there's tree bark, right? That's what we see. It helps to protect the tree from disease and whatever stuff that scrapes up against it. And then you have your, your sapwood, which is kind of like the living layers of the tree. And that is transporting, you know, you've got your, I'm talking cross-section, but now we're talking vertical for a tree, all of the, the little channels that are providing your nutrients and your water and bringing stuff up from the roots and to the crown. So you've got like two dimensions of, of stuff going on on the tree, but those living layers are what's adding to the diameter every year. And then the heartwood is, it's not dead necessarily, I guess it's dead. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's no longer transporting nutrients at that point. And so it converts to that kind of active layer to an inactive layer. And there's super cool science about what fungi and bugs go for what parts of the tree and. Can grow, but the sapwood and the heartwood have different properties from a, a lumber stamp.
0: And you can use them in different applications. Like there are uses for sapwood.
1: Yeah, aesthetic. I territory that I should know about. I'm like totally blanking. Mostly it doesn't usually have an impact unless it's aesthetic or rock resistance. But for something like walnut, which the whole point of the aesthetics of walnut is that that heartwood part, that center is, you know, what you're going for. Some folks don't like the sapwood look that like contrasty white to dark and certain kiln processes will actually steam walnut so that you kind of bleed the heartwood color into the sap.
0: Wow, I didn't even know that that was possible that there was I mean I've obviously seen, you know, having a woodworking husband, blonde walnut next to a darker walnut, but I didn't know
1: that the pigmentation was mobile yeah if you depending on how you do it, it's the steam process. Uh, and sometimes honestly, it's just very variable. Trees are individuals, too, so there's really dark lots and yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you get a chance to see that when you're sort
0: of selecting for, and i I have it in my notes because i, I it's not something when you're bucking a tree that there's this art form to recognizing i'm sure both grain and color in what will be the final product and and learning how to have sort of x-ray vision when looking at a tree that's in the forest so to speak
1: yeah and i would say we're not necessarily there like on the milling side of things we can definitely kind of manipulate the log so that we're getting you know the aesthetic pattern or or the rot resistant pattern or whatever trees are harder and there are some people who are really, really good at it. And I don't think I'd necessarily classify us at that level.
0: Comes with time. It's like looking at a steer and knowing what it's going to look like in
1: the butcher process. Yeah. So there are some really phenomenally talented woods folks in the world, of which I'm sure that you are
0: one. I'm curious to unpack a little bit about talking about that ecosystem, both the individual tree and the forest and how you look at management from an ecosystem, as opposed to just going in and clear cutting, you're going in and really selecting and tending to the forest in a way that is going to increase its health.
1: Is that correct? That's the goal. That's That's the the dream. Yeah. That's our dream, I guess. And there's some, you know, how do you manage a forest on a forest scale as a human but also I think modern forestry falls short is that the economics of being able to interact with the woods on a continuous basis doesn't it's just not really there right like say more
0: I'm want to under I'm not sure I fully understand yeah so like to
1: manage a forest I think like for on a forest scale and kind of to the ideals of balancing timber harvests with ecosystem dynamics and biodiversity, you'd really be having this super personal relationship with the woods and saying like, well, you know, I was, I was going to wait to harvest that tree because of all of these reasons, but maybe a storm went through or, oh, look, actually it's got rot or, you know, it looks like it's got dieback or, and maybe, maybe we need maybe to be harvested now versus, you know, having a management plan that's kind of like setting out a timber harvest once every 10 years or whatever, which, and there are amazing foresters who do that and loggers and loggers who just look at the forest and can kind of intuitively understand how to harvest trees for the health of the forest, but it's from experience and it's from interaction and it's, you have to make money also. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So when you're managing, I think on, I don't know how well I'm explaining this, but like, if you're managing a forest based on timber trends or like lumber trends, you're not always managing it for forests.
0: No, not based on the needs of that forest and the health of that forest. I think something that struck me in one of the articles that you sent to me in prepping for this was a gentleman talking about Preserving, And this is just a single example. And I think that this is such a complex, right? This is such a complex ecosystem. And so, but this single example was that he wanted to preserve shade over running water to keep the water cool for trout spawning which requires a certain temperature of water and so there's this intimate interaction between trees and earth between trees and any water features that might be there and all of the fauna that's there as well all of the wildlife and plant life diversity in both the overstory and the understory
1: yeah it gets wicked complicated And, you know, I think the more we work in the forest, the more kind of our ideas about forest management clarify, but also like we're, we're learning constantly. So, you know, I don't, and it looks different based on where you are. Absolutely. So I love talking about forest management. I don't have any leg to stand on about recommendations that people can implement other than having that close personal relationship. Yeah. And do you cultivate
0: that by just spending time in the forest and becoming, I talk about this all the time in regenerative agriculture, becoming an observer?
1: I get very distracted when I'm in a forest because I I start looking at birds. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, in being in a forest, you're always learning something. and, And we're starting to pay so much more attention to things like insects and mushrooms and that dynamic you know there's there's always something new to learn about how we're interacting with trees and trees are interacting with the world
0: yeah. Those mycelial networks that are connecting and bringing nutrients to those trees and the fungi, the above ground fungi that enjoy different trees. I know that a little bit before this time of year, every year we go up and there's some dying apple trees and morel mushrooms love to grow there.
1: Yeah. So there's like, there's so much you can learn from the non-tree parts of the forest.
0: Yeah. You mentioned something that I think is really important. And I'm I'm not quite sure what question to ask here. And so I'm going to give a little backstory just from my personal standpoint. I think a lot about financial sustainability with the butcher shop, that we can talk about environmental sustainability. We can talk about ecosystem management all we want. But if the if the businesses that are supporting those endeavors aren't financially stable or can't find some financial sustainability then it's really hard to have these conversations and any time you know from my lens of farming when we're talking about longer growouts for meat and more quality cutting that's very different than like a you know a, a slaughterhouse that does 18,000 animals a day and they just have sort of a machine line like our style of cutting is more labor intensive and it yields more quality cuts but it costs more to do it this way from a lot of different aspects and i i heard you mention financial sustainability well i don't have the perfect question in mind What does that look like in
1: your industry? That's a complicated question. Yeah, it's a good question. It's really, really hard to be a logger, I guess is how I'd preface this. Like, I want to say, like, log prices haven't changed. So, back up a couple steps. Loggers get paid for, quote, like, stumpage price, which is basically the amount that a tree is worth or the amount that the logs are worth. And how is that,
0: is that calculated based on the width of the stump or the... It's
1: a combination of, you know, how many board feet of lumber are in that log. So like the, the yield, the lumber yield of the log, also industry standards for just like species, because not every species is worth the same amount. We used to get the hardwood market report which is a weekly publication of lumber and stumpage prices, mostly lumber prices, but you know what logs are going for and and what lumber is going for. And, and so as a logger, that's what's determining your income is your timber harvest. And arborists get paid to take trees down. They get paid basically for their time and the risk generally really like tricky spots whereas loggers are getting paid for what they produce. And so that is a very it's a complicated economic system when you are trying to do sustainable forestry because if you're trying to say, you know, manage a, a piece of land that had maybe been carelessly managed previously. The amount that you can financially harvest is very different than something that has, you know, unlimited quantities of high-quality timber, which is an unrealized dream in most places. So, you know, in order to make a living, you need to harvest more or you need to harvest more efficiently. And so you're relying on bigger equipment or which means that equipment payments are harder which means yeah. you know Big upfront
0: investment i'm sure we're yeah. talking about
1: equipment that costs tens of
0: thousands of dollars thirty, forty, eighty thousand 40 80 thousand dollars for, for people up. that are yeah
1: yeah it's way up <laughs> way up sure six figures yeah and so you know like for us logging isn't economically viable without having this like very niche Vertically integrated, basically market for it, and so that that vertical integration for us is pretty key to financial stability.
0: So, looking at the value that you can add as oh, I hate this word, but artisanal sawmillers. I hate the word artisanal, not saw. (laughs) The value that you can add after it's come out of the forest for people that are purchasing that lumber is that correct?
1: But also we. It's more efficient for us on the sawmill side of things because we are like custom logging products. Yeah, it's a pretty strange dynamic. And I want to say that stumpage prices for the softwood mills up north, like haven't changed in decades
0: yeah, I read something that you had written that said that they have been stagnant for four decades. And you know, in a world where all we hear about is inflation, I think it's crazy to think about something that has been static for that long.
1: Yeah. And so like from a making a living as a logger standpoint, like it just makes it so complicated. And that's a, it's a barrier to kind of my personal ideal of sustainable forest management is just the economic side. Yeah. I gosh
0: knows that I can't agree more when it comes to farming and butchery. I mean, we 10 years owning that butcher shop and we have made it by the skin of our teeth and barely that. Yeah.
1: I think there there are lots of parallels.
0: We'll yeah, I think there are a lot of parallels. And I was actually thinking, and I don't fully understand this, but you have, you have to pay somebody to
1: take away wood pulp. Is that correct? At the m- moment? So the pulp market is very... It almost operates at a different level sometimes. And two years ago this summer, the closest pulp mill, the digester blew up. And that's a couple billion dollars maybe to fix. And so Miles would absolutely know the number for this. And I do not. I want... It was like 100 truckloads a day. Oh, wow. Okay. It was a lot of wood. Like it was a huge volume. And it was... That pulp mill was servicing like Northern New England. It was in J-Maine and pulp from New Hampshire, pulp from Massachusetts, pulp from Maine. Like, so that kind of like, there's always low grade wood in the woods. And that's a good thing, you know, for forests, for everything, but to make it economical, you can't just cut stuff down for free. And so when that digester blew up, it took out a really significant market for low grade wood and even if you're, you know, breaking even or just making a couple hundred a ton, like it's still a significant component. It is.
0: I mean, it's a, we call the butcher business, a penny's business that sometimes in farms and butcher shops, you're operating on less than 2% margins. And so every little bit
1: counts. Yeah. And so that, yeah. So when all of a sudden, like you are now paying, to haul it away or, you know, leaving it in the woods, or there's not really a great alternative necessarily. We invested in a chipper, recently, which I sort of hate. I don't, I will run every piece of equipment except for the chipper. Just apparently that's
0: my limit. From a dangerous piece of machinery standpoint. I just my body doesn't like being next to it. I don't yeah, I think that's fair. The other
1: stuff is dangerous too.
0: Yeah, I mean it's all yeah.
1: But yeah, I, I it's not well, I my, have a husband that says, you know, a router
0: is one of the most dangerous pieces of equipment in a wood shop, but most people don't consider it. And so there are
1: these kind of unconsidered pieces of equipment. And chippers are like fairly obviously quite dangerous. But, you know, part of it was we invested in that because, you know, a landowner doesn't really like having just like massive piles of trees slash this kind of like clean timber harvest ideal, which I I suppose I disagree with, but we got the chipper so that we could chip the nutrients back into the woods while still having it be a little bit aesthetically less chaotic than just piles of slime.
0: Yeah. Because in nature, right? A tree is going to fall and rot and it's going to add something back into that ecosystem in its degradation. And so when you're, you're, I don't know quite how to say this, but you're kind of denying the forest it's pound of flesh.
1: Yeah. If you're taking everything out of it, Definitely. So, and you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of things you can do sometimes like we'll, depending on the the harvest, you can kind of like pack your skin roads full of the tops of trees and you just kind of like drive on them and it takes some impact off of the soil while keeping that nutrient source there. But we do, the chipper has been nice for that.
0: It's interesting, you know, in this financial sustainability conversation that I've had with a lot of different people. And I think in some ways, you know, talking about having to pay to Take off wood pulp. It's similar to the lack of leather industry in regenerative agriculture. I mean, you have to pay people to take away hides mm. in a lot of situations, and and there should be this market. It just hasn't been created. But you have, you know, this sort of if you do. West Jackson calls it a sunshine study, where you're sort of looking at all the energy inputs and all the money inputs. It's a lot to consider. I assume powering a sawmill and the diesel for equipment. We all know where gas prices are. And and labor and that that there's loss too i mean similar to butchery i presume that you know it's your yield isn't 100% and you also have shrinkage yes
1: yeah it was actually fascinating because i think our output is a little bit more now but we burned the same amount of fuel like if both of us are commuting cuz miles sometimes works at a little engineering startup and so if we're both commuting, we'll burn almost the same amount of fuel as we do with both of us running the mill business full-time. Really? And the kilns push that dynamic a little bit. We're investing in a wood chip boiler and solar panels, hopefully. Definitely wood chip boiler first, but then hopefully solar panels to try and reduce some of our like cost and fossil fuel inputs for the mill. And the... The dry wood chip boiler also allows us to chip the, like the the bark parts of a log, which are not lumber, but have to come off and use that to power the drying
0: process. Sure. And then you have a, you're getting closer to a closed loop system. Fascinating. Sure. That makes all the sense in the world. One thing I, I didn't get to that I, I want to circle back around on is you work in an urban environment. I think we think a lot about when we're talking about forestry management, we think about more rural environments, but you also work some with urban wood.
1: Yes, <laughs> We are close enough to the seacoast of New Hampshire that in yard trees.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But tell me, I don't even know what comprises urban wood and how that's different from rural wood, and and if there's any difference in the process from getting it down if they if it has metal in it or or
1: what that process looks like. Yeah. So, big like most commercial mills won't take urban trees because of the likelihood of metal. Because their saw blades are a couple hundred dollars and ours are like $45. Also, we have a metal detector. But so in general, it's it's like already not part of the commercial lumber stream. But then again, you know, again, with arborists getting paid to take down trees, their goal is to take down the tree safely and, you know, efficiently for their time. Which means that it's not we talked about bucking logs to scale and grade and everything that's not their goal, so you're kind of you ended up with this like different type of logs from the urban system and you're not you're not getting them like a pine stand right you're you're not getting a truckload worth of pine you're getting Oh, a pear tree that was growing in someone's yard combined with a couple of pine logs, maybe a dead ash tree, a walnut that was dropping stuff on someone's car and like a miscellaneous ornamental that someone planted a hundred years ago.
0: And then you're using those, which would I assume would just go into, I don't even, where would those go otherwise? It's usually around here, bark mulch. Some places it's a landfill. Yeah. Okay. But you can utilize them in the sawmill business. And
1: and yeah. Not as a blanket statement. Um, the, the log quality is definitely different. But yeah, in many cases, we can use it. It's the most unique lumber that we get comes from urban settings.
0: Unique in terms of species or in terms of its quality or its visual
1: aesthetic? Visual species, you know, especially with the seacoast and like, I think... This is my guess, but UNH professors probably planted a lot of unique ornamentals because we end up with some really random things. And so, yeah, aesthetically and species-wise, it's a pretty cool collection. And so for, you know, you're, you're kind of like... I wouldn't say it's good. It wouldn't be my ideal for milling like flooring product out of necessarily, but for your furniture pieces, like anything statement, like it's just like really one of a kind, unique stuff.
0: That's really, that's really neat. And it's really neat to see that certainly not going into a landfill. And then we repurpose the eye bolts
1: too. You know, I think most of our barns have like eye bolts, plant hangers, stuff we've pulled out of logs. I bet. screwdrivers. drivers. Speaking of your space. So did you guys build your house? Nope. Okay. It's a early 1800s cake. And but you have
0: begun to or or have already re outfitted it in many
1: ways. It's like eighty percent renovated.
0: Okay, all using lumber
1: right from directly around you. Yes, it was sort of one of the reasons we could get this house and feel like we could renovate it because we had a lumber stream. Mm-hmm.
0: And how has that been to bring the forest into your home to bring I nature it. into your home?
1: Yeah, and it's also you know. I mean, there's, there's the process of like working with miles and renovating. That's a memory that goes into the, the wood products, but also just that, that kind of forest memory that goes into the wood products also.
0: Yeah. How is it working with your husband? I mean, as somebody, I own a butcher shop with my husband, I farm with my husband. I do everything with my husband and I love it. I love it. That's what we like. And I know that's not for every couple, but how has it been to build this, build this business and to build this life together?
1: I don't think it would have turned out the way it did if we didn't like working together. So, that's probably one of the main components for how it it snowballed. So, so well is that we work very well together and complement each other and at this point, you know, I can we we were Miles is a CNC machine, so it's for like manufacturing parts
0: and stuff yeah I've, my husband has worked with cnc machines yeah
1: excellent i don't have to explain it because I don't be have to
0: explain it yeah it, it's a it's a difficult i mean it's, it's just sort of you have a computer model and it i don't even want to say words chisels lasers makes little parts uh, widgets i don't even know <laughs>
1: yeah it I, does look like that it does stuff um, like so that. We were, we were moving the CNC to the new barn and it's heavy and it's like we had already put things in the barn. So we were trying to maneuver it with equipment in an awkward space. And I look over and I see him just like sitting in the wheel loader, which is like a almost like a forklifty kind of thing, and just staring. At, like two different things. And I was like, trying to like m- mime, you know, it's a bad idea. Like what you're thinking is a bad uh-huh. idea. Uh-huh. And he was just like, you don't know what I'm thinking. I'm like, incorrect. You <laughs> want to, rat- to wrap up the CNC to the top of the kiln and move it into place. And he was like, okay, yes, that's what I was thinking. Oh my also, gosh. we're going to do it anyways. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> Did it work out? It did. He reminded me that the kiln was full of lumber. So it was, you know, a couple thousand pounds worth mm-hmm. of pull mm-hmm. capacity.
0: Yeah. And I love that. I love that story.
1: We can, yeah. At this point we, we work well enough to know each other's thinking and and, and have miming conversations while wearing ear protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You just, you, you have a certain language of working together that I think develops. And I know that I have that with my husband and I think it's a really special thing.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a distinct flow. And I I think Miles doesn't quite always realize it when he's working with new people all the time, but like that flow takes time to develop.
0: Yeah, it does. It does to understand each other and, and how you work and think and, and
1: not talk the, the silent language that you use. Yeah. He was joking one time. He was like, I was, I was debating between getting you like earphone earmuffs, you know, like radio earmuffs or those ones where we could talk to each other during the day. And then he was like, obviously you want the radio earmuffs. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I do.
0: Yeah. I've worked with the the earmuffs where you can talk to each other at a wood shop that Josh managed many, many moons ago. And, and it's wild. It's, it's such a strange thing. Yeah. I love that. I I'm curious. I mean, we've talked about a lot of different things. Have I missed anything that's burning a hole in your pocket as we come up on 2 hours? I don't want to I don't want to miss anything because I think that this is fascinating and I think that this is really a valuable lens for people to get to know just the idea of lumber and to get introduced to this idea and to get their curiosity flowing. And so, have I missed anything major? I don't think so to be fair I, I'm not sure I remember what I've said <laughs> <laughs> I have that that sort of blackout during podcast that's kind of how I I understand that
1: yeah no I just I don't know we as a society use a lot of wood and so I think just having people think about it is really valuable
0: yeah I agree I mean just just to begin to notice it around your life and to notice it in the forest as well
1: As Miles would say, I'm I'm currently ruining other people's viewpoints on lumber now because I talk about it and then you can't not notice wood. But I think that the noticing is that
0: first step in our relationship with it changing and that paradigm shifting.
1: Yeah. And I would love... I just love when people feel connected to... The outdoor space they're living in. and I think part of that is through what is in our homes.
0: I completely agree, and I, I think that's a really lovely idea to bring nature into our homes. How can people find a sawmill f- near them?
1: We're all awful, and we live in our little spaces and are terrible at marketing. So honestly, so there's a couple of different like places you can look. The urban wood network. Is, as the name implies, a network of urban sawmills, woodworkers, arborists. It's trying to help connect urban trees to a, you know, an indoor use. Yeah, we'll get all of this in the show notes too. Awesome, um, and then. Like Woodmiser, which is the brand of sawmill that we have, or one of the sawmills is a wood they have a like a pro sawyer network, and so on their website, you can search by location and it can tell you like, do they do portable milling, do they do drying, whatever iDry, the, the kiln company also, I think has a directory of kilns and they're, they very tend to be associated with small sawmills or small woodworking companies. And I think there's even like sawmills near me, which I don't think we're listed on. So I, that I'm currently explaining why it's so hard to find a sawmill because we are, yeah, I don't know. We're just, really into making piles of things and not so much into like the technology of things. Yeah.
0: And I, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of people that work in farming that, that work in sawmills that work in these more tactile, tangible aspects
1: of you don't want to be online. Right. And to be fair, I, I spend a lot of time on Instagram, but Instagram can be a really lovely way to find folks. If you, it's hard to like geographically sort. hmm we all talk to each other. Yeah. The small sawmills tend to be very close knit, even though geographically we never leave. Yeah. Oh, well, because you're
0: open sourcing and sharing information. Small butcher shops tend to be similar. If you go into a butcher shop, they should be able to recommend one in your city. You know, people would come to us all the time and ask, Well, I live in X place. Where would you shop for meat there? I usually had an answer.
1: Or someone to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So YouTube, there's actually a lot of Sawyers on YouTube. Amazing. Again, we're not, we're not one of them. So yeah, it was cool that, that like fast company article, the the journalist who had done the article she had posted on Instagram and there was a whole bunch of comments being like, Oh my gosh, my favorite urban lumber sawmill is, you know, and they tag them. Oh, like, amazing. This is awesome. Like that. That's exactly what I want is people being like, Oh, if you're in Anaheim, like go to these folks, or if you're in New York, like check out these guys. I think that's, you know, asking people just in
0: our area where they, especially we, I mean, we live very rurally and people had three recommendations for small sawmills in our area. And I know that we utilize one called
1: Phil's mill. <laughs> there are seven woodmiser sawmills in my town. Wow. And that's the cool thing is that they range from like, you know, one of them has an arborist business. And so they mostly do sawmilling from trees. They cut down some of the folks are hobby level. One of the guys only likes to do portable sawmilling, preferably in pine. Like there's so many niche ways to run a sawmill business. Mm, I love that. Doesn't help anyone find lumber, but it's, (laughs) I think it's really cool.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one thing I'll say is that we've used our local sawmill because, you know, money is tight on the farm and we can sometimes purchase, we purchase a lot of scraps for building projects. So, like, we're building a round pen and a sorting pen for our animals. And we are using as the cross pieces scrap lumber, which greatly reduce the cost of the project. And so it's just another thing that I think that another value that local sawmills can at times add is that you can pick up these
1: strange dimensional scrap pieces. Yeah. Or barter, which is how we do a lot of business, I suppose, with farms. <laughs> so yeah,
0: we do we do a lot of bartering as well. I, that is all I want is to just go into a, a barter economy.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's where you get that like local community versus kind of your big box store lumber,
0: which is really important. And I think that it's important to remember that these communities would have sprung up and that the Sawyer would have been an integral essential part of any community as, as shelters went up and were built, that we all have these, these little niches to offer and, and that it does build community when we begin to seek them out.
1: Yeah. We have such a cool community, both of customers and friends and other sawyers and loggers. Like, I really love it. There's so many people connected to forests and we learn so much from all of them.
0: I love that. That leads me to my last question, which I ask everyone, which is what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? What does it mean for me to lay
1: the groundwork? Could be for yourself, could be for future generations, could be for the forest. I think a lot of the times for me, it means to pay attention. And that's, I guess for everyone, you know, pay attention to the forest and just for myself to really, to look at things and to look at what I'm doing and look deeper at, you know, it's not just a log, like it was growing somewhere. It was growing in the forest. And and what does that really look like? What can I pass on?
0: I love that. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Where can people find you? Where can people find Timberdoodle Farm? Where can they find you? And we'll have links to this in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, Timberdoodle Sawmill is, I think, our website, which I clearly haven't updated in before you say that. Yeah. We're on Instagram. It's probably our, our main kind of like sharing platform. Realistically at the moment, I would like no one to contact me about purchasing lumber for like three months. we are very, very busy. But if you want to get in touch and ask about where to find a sawmill near you, like always happy to put folks in touch with, with local lumber sources.
0: I love that. I think that's fantastic. And again, we'll have all of that in the show notes. I just, I can't thank you enough. I learned so much today and I think that you uncovered an entire industry where I don't even know what I don't know. And I really will walk away from this conversation considering where all of the wood in my life comes from and really seeking out a deeper connection. And so I'm just really appreciative for you sharing your story today.
1: And thank you so much for, for the opportunity. It was, it's really fun to talk about trees in all that forms. (laughs) I agree. I love that. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. And hopefully we will get to visit you or you visit
0: us and make that happen. Time. Yeah, I would love to, I, you know, and I, I would love to make that happen. We are not in June. <laughs> yeah. For us too, actually not in June, but as the summer wears on, I would really love that. And we are sometimes capable of getting away from the farm rarely overnight, just because it requires, it requires us finding a farm sitter.
1: Oh yeah. we Day trips.
0: Day trips. But I would love to meet and, or have you guys out to the farm and get you some meat. I don't know. Maybe we can trade a little meat for wood in some situation. That could happen. <laughs> yeah. I have to ask you, I'm so curious about this. Have you read The Overstory by Richard Powers?
1: I have not read The Overstory. Okay. I've read Finding the Mother Tree, which I did really enjoy.
0: Okay. I, yeah. And you had sent that one and that's that's going on my list. Um, but the overstory I read was probably like two years ago. And it's just a really fascinating and beautiful book. And it's very tree centric.
1: It's been recommended. And quite frankly, I don't know why I haven't. Sometimes I think books find us when they're ready to find us. You know,
0: and it, it I I've had books that were recommended to me three, four times. And then I finally picked them up and it was the right time for me to read that book. And so, I don't know. It'll come to you when it's right.
1: Perfect. I like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for explaining all of this. I feel very naive, but very
1: excited to learn about this and to to really take it to heart. It's a bizarre niche to find myself in. So like, I, I guess I just want to put it on record. No one should feel ashamed for not having any idea where wood comes from because there's no way of knowing right now. Like that's the system. So the fact that you feel naive about it, like that's not you on any level.
0: So yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I mean, I feel the same way about the food system and it's all just about peeling back the layers and peeling back the curtain and sort of revealing it through the lens of how different people are working within those systems.
1: Yeah. So thanks for providing this opportunity for, for layers. Yeah. Thank you so much
0: for all of your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm not exactly sure when this will come out, but I will, I'll send you all the stuff when it does. Cool. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. We'll meet soon. Perfect. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the groundwork podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.